Hello, and welcome to The Professional Outsider. I'm Megan Herndon. On this show, we'll explore leadership and a whole lot more with the professional outsider himself, Randy Beck. Randy is founder and president of Route 2, Inc. His company works with senior executives, founders, and other leaders of leaders from 14 countries and across industries to improve leadership performance and drive better business outcomes. And now, he's here to help you. From sharing stories from his early corporate days and subsequent years as the professional outsider to leadership learning you can use and a whole lot more, welcome to The Professional Outsider. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about common cognitive errors that cause bad decisions. So good to see you today, Randy. Well, hello, Megan. To start us off today, can you tell me a little bit about some common cognitive errors that you see in the workplace? Well, you know, there are 15 that the psychology or psychiatric community tells us are common. And I'm going to talk about three of them. And I'm going to talk about three of them because they're very common in both in business settings and in families. And also, I'm only going to talk about three of them because that's all I can remember. (laughs) Sounds good. So the first one is binary thinking. You know, things are either black or white. Mm -hmm. Things are either or. And the, the way I see that playing out in business most frequently is the idea that um, we uh, we have to take take for example we have a competitor mm-hmm. and we decide as a, a leader that we have to either crush the competitor or acquire the competitor. Mm-hmm. I have to either win or lose, and I want to win. And in order for me to win, somebody else has to lose. You know, that's been a common business approach for many many years. I think to a degree it's driven by uh, an overdose of testosterone that we guys tend to have. We have to compete for everything. We always have to win. But, you know, what happened back in the late 80s is there was, uh, um, I don't remember who it was, but there was a beginning of approach where somebody somebody said that, well, wait a minute, what if we collaborate with our competition? And the example I remember was that in 1973, when... um, the oil embargo hit. The CEO of General Motors said Toyota can have the small car market. It'll never be profitable anyway. Well, we all know what happened with <laughs> right. that. And so almost 20 years later, what happened is uh, Toyota and General Motors collaborated on economy cars. And General Motors, who was so arrogant, felt they couldn't learn anything from anybody, mm-hmm. realized if they were going to survive, they had to change their perspective. So right. historically, an either or, we're going to win or we're going to crush the competition. They realized they couldn't crush the competition. In fact, the competition was crushing them. And it took 20 years for their arrogance to get out of the way and decide, well, maybe we can learn something from our competition. Maybe we can collaborate and do something good together. And there have been many examples of that. And I think uh, it's also particularly pertinent now we're in the age of acceleration, as Tom Friedman says in his mm-hmm. new book, uh, um, Thank You for Being Late. And in the age of acceleration, things have to happen fast. Well, things do happen fast, and business has to respond fast, and we have to anticipate. And most uh, fast-growing, privately-held, middle-sized businesses, the kind that I work with, don't have the resources to do everything. So if you're trying to be innovative and you're trying to create new products that anticipate the market... You may not have um, expertise in all the arenas that have to play into the to the product, and you may not have the financial resources to build that expertise or the time. So maybe you partner with people that have that expertise to produce something great together. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, 
I won't say it's a brand new concept because uh, it started coming into play in the late 80s, but it was pretty foreign prior to then. So that's an example of binary thinking that existed before. And then somebody saying, well, wait a minute, there are other options. There's not just one or two options. Let's open our minds and get our prejudices out of the way and realize that uh, it's not just either and, it's also or. So the second one is confirmation bias. And how I most frequently see that play out is in business when a leader uh, gets a negative impression of somebody for whatever reason. You know, somebody drops the ball a couple times, somebody uh, tends to get emotional in meetings, somebody tends to do something that isn't good for the team, uh, somebody who's new wants to be an executive someday, you know, behaves immaturely. Mm-hmm. And what tends to happen if it's a particular kind of behavior that really pushes the boss's buttons, then unconsciously, the boss starts only seeing that behavior. Right. And so we almost end up looking for this person to do the things wrong that validate that they're immature. And when they don't behave immaturely, we don't even see it. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard for somebody to recover from that. And in order for them to be able to recover, the boss has to step back and say, wait a minute, I'm not fairly evaluating this person. There was, a, there's a quote, and um, I don't remember whose it is. I would give attribution if I did. I'm not going to claim it for myself, but it's not mine, but I love it. And it said, <laughs> my tailor is the only person who truly knows me because he reevaluates me every time he sees me. Third one is catastrophizing. And I'll call that the chicken little syndrome. You know, we, <laughs> sky we, is falling. Yeah, the sky is falling. And uh, we um, we didn't close the deal we were planning mm-hmm. to close. And we made some financial decisions anticipating revenue that isn't going to come in now. And oh my gosh, you know, we're going to go bankrupt. Oh my gosh, we're never going to recover from this. And life goes on and we recover. Somebody loses a job and it's the end of the world. And I'll tell you a personal story about that. When I was 41 years old, I was working for a multinational and executive position. And over the course of the 12 years that I'd worked for that company, I had uh, been one of the leaders that did three downsizing major. Mm. Well, we we had polite terms for them back then, <laughs> you know, a restructuring, a re-engineering the corporation, uh, right-sizing. Mm. And, you know, those were all terms for just simply expecting the people that remain to do more right. and expecting to produce more with less. Now, these, this started happening before technology was really big in companies. So ultimately what happened is few people ended, do it up, ended up doing the work of many. And uh, whether it was good or not really isn't particularly debatable because much of the research that was done afterwards said that 70% of the companies that did this really experienced no improvement in performance over the intervening five years. That aside, um, we had another restructuring coming about, I'll call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, my boss was the chairman of the company, the vice chairman of the company. And I called him and I said, Larry, um, we have just excavated a foundation for a new home. And I want to know what's going to happen to our division in this, uh, this thing that's getting ready to happen. And he says, you know, we're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Three weeks later, after we'd started building the home, uh, my boss flew out, a company was headquartered on the East Coast, and uh, he set up a meeting with me at a local uh, hotel and flew out to talk with me. Well, you know, as soon as the meeting was set, I knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And he apologized profusely and said, you know, this is the way it's going to be. Well, 
at the time, that was very stressful. Right. Because we had just made a pretty significant financial commitment. And my wife's a school teacher, but she wasn't working. She was staying home being a mom, mm-hmm. raising the kids at the time. And I kind of got into a little bit of chicken little at that point in time. And what really helped me to get through it is my dad was an entrepreneur. And he was a small business, blue collar entrepreneur. And we had a lot of ups and downs as mm-hmm. I was growing up. And my mom would always freak out. And dad would always say, honey, it's going to be okay. And it was always okay. And because that happened, I started my consulting business and have had a much more wonderful life than I did working in the corporate world much more freedom. I've worked with hundreds of really smart people in a broad range of industries. So, you know, the change that uh, causes us to catastrophize and do this chicken little thing usually isn't the worst. Mm -hmm. Usually it's not as bad as we think it's going to be. And in fact, if we learn to be resilient, we figure it out and do something that most frequently is better. Yeah. You know, I've terminated um, a handful of people over my career And it's interesting because I've had a reasonable number of them send me a note, call me later and say, you know, I was really angry when you did that, but thank you. Best thing in the world for me. I'm doing something I really love now. I'm making half again as much money. My family's happy. I'm family happy. I'm not traveling all the time, et cetera, et cetera. So life goes on. You know, there are a few things that you can't recover from. And so we're talking about, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling. It's easy to kind of you know, when you're standing back from it and you're seeing how it all worked out, oh yeah, you know, it worked out, I'm, I'm better off because of it. But say those, you know, former employees or one of your kids comes to you and says, the sky is falling, I lost my job or something like that. What do you tell them right in that moment? Cool. <laughs> now the world's opened up, you've got opportunities. And when, when people are able to understand that a change closes some door. I mean, this is this is very cliched. I know it, so forgive me. But change closes a door, but it opens more doors. Mm-hmm. And the sooner we can see that, the more we can move towards hopping on board with the change. And you know, that's a big deal, even for people that stay in companies. So the organization changes, and the person used to have a job running. Let's say we're talking about a production employee. Mm-hmm. The employee used to have a job running a particular kind of production machinery. The person had been doing it for 10 years. They were an expert. They knew everything about the machine. They did their own maintenance. Their production numbers were off the chart. And the world changed. We bought a new machine. Mm -hmm. And the new machine required a level of technical knowledge because what used to be done manually now has to be done with technology. And the person has to understand a CAD program. The person has to understand how to run a computer program to set up this new roboticized piece of operations that they had no idea about before. So when you think about that kind of a change and the catastrophizing that a person might go through in that, it's that, oh my gosh, I was the expert. I was the go-to person. Mm -hmm. And I was respected because I knew everything there was to know about this particular operation. And now I'm starting over and I'm scared. I don't know if I'm going to be able to understand the math that's necessary to do what I have to do mm-hmm. to learn to operate technology I didn't know how to operate before. I'm going to look like a beginner. I'm going to look like a rookie. I'm going to look like a fool. Well, you know, that's one approach. Somebody else might say, cool. <laughs> you know, I know I've been behind in learning technology and uh, the company's going to provide training. I can get some outside training uh, at uh, you know some of the local schools. I'm all in. And I'm going to have to work harder than I've had to work 
for the last 10 years. You know, I'm going to have to do some extra things on my own time in addition to what the company's providing me, but the opportunities I see are great. So to agree, some of those are just the way people view the world. Mm -hmm. Some people tend to be victims and the sky is always falling. Mm -hmm. Other people tend to be navigators and they see opportunity and change. And I think from a coaching standpoint, I would always encourage everybody to see opportunity and change mm -hmm. rather than defeat, rather than rather than uh, the sky is falling. And part of the way you do that is by being an outsider mm -hmm. inside. If your perspective, because you've been in a company for 10 or 12 years, not you personally, but a person. Anyone, yeah. Has been someplace in a very similar job at a very same company for many, many years. It, it's, it requires a lot of effort to see a picture bigger right than what you've experienced mm -hmm. it's kind of like the person that grows up in a small town and doesn't travel doesn't get out of their small town lives their whole life in the small town and really has no perspective about opportunities in the broader world mm -hmm. no has no perspective about globalization no ex no perspective about what's really going on and where opportunities exist other than what they know and are comfortable with that's pretty much uh death on a person that wants a highly successful career mm -hmm. and wants to, you know, be navigating the future. Um, not everybody wants that. Some people like being where they were, being where they grew up and staying there and running a nice business, having a nice job. That's okay. But it's limited perspective. Mm -hmm. Next time I have a, a chicken little moment, I'm going to think of you and I'm just going to sit back and say, cool <laughs> just keep going <laughs> so we talked about binary thinking confirmation bias and catastrophizing or the uh, chicken little phenomenon how can we overcome these phenomenons and kind of keep moving forward from them well i think first and, and this is one of the key elements of every high-performing leader self-awareness you know we really need to understand who we are we need to understand the kind of life that we want to live mm -hmm. and then do things, find opportunities, take actions that are always moving us towards the life we want to live. And once again, uh, you know, I'd reiterate that having a bigger perspective than the common perspective or conventional wisdom of where you work is a pretty important piece of that. You know, having a bigger perspective than where you live, your neighborhood, your community provides opportunity. You know, opportunities that we don't even anticipate otherwise. So I think part of it is, is being a bigger thinker. I think it's traveling. I think it's reading. I think it's uh, finding opportunities to be with people who are different mm -hmm. than we are. And um, that you have to do deliberately sometime if you're in a um, somewhat same that you've always had sort right. of an environment. That's one of the things I love about my business. We've worked with people from 14 different countries in the last five years. You know, I've worked with people of I won't say all religions because there's a lot of religions in right. the world. And even though religion isn't what we do, you know, we've had people in our leadership sessions that are Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, and multiple others that I don't even remember. And knowing those people and being able to interact with them and having the languages that are, you know, sometimes language barriers because I don't speak but two languages. Right. And if we've got people in a class that speak five different languages, you know, they're all fluent in English. I'm not fluent in their right. languages. So who's <laughs> who's the slacker in that equation? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I have studied French and spent a lot of time. Uh, I lived in France for a couple months. And I think also just languages really shape the way that people think. And just like in France, there's a saying that whenever 
you're going on a trip or you're leaving somewhere, they'll say profiter, which is like to profit from, but it's not financial. It's just go like make the most of whatever Ooh, you're like doing. Oh, I like that. Profiter? Profiter, yeah, Profiter. which is one of my favorite French words. Oh, I love that. <laughs> um, but to continue talking a bit about, you know, we we're talking about overcoming those cognitive errors and common you know, just mindsets that you get into in the workplace. Um, a lot of the time, though, it's difficult. You talked about the example of, you know, you see someone behaving a certain way or making the same kind of mistakes and, you know, confirmation bias. You start to only see that. Um, when you're talking about making decisions, though, sometimes you need to make quick decisions and you don't have time to, you know, consider all of the different alternatives. How can you kind of balance timely decision making while still taking into account different factors and different perspectives? I think there's some basic setup in an organization, mm -hmm. in an individual, that makes that easier. And let's start with a company. Uh, and for a company, I think it's uh, to make good decisions, there has to be a foundation for decision making. And from my perspective, that's uh, a solid vision mm -hmm. of where we're headed as an organization. Under that vision, a clear mission, what are we here to do? So, you know, we're going to move towards our vision. What are we going to do to move towards our vision? Mm -hmm. Clear values. You know, what are the behaviors that are cast in concrete that we are going to live by, whether times are good, whether times are bad, um, whether the tax man's here or not? You know, what are the values that we hold dear? So if every leader in an organization has the same view of those, of those criteria, and clearly understands them, which actually works best if they've participated in creating them rather than had them dictated by the boss, then people understand if they make a decision that's in alignment with the vision, mission, and values. And if it's within the parameters of uh, the budget, within the parameters of the, uh, the guidelines that people are supposed to operate under in the business that are maybe at a little low, lower level than mission, vision, and values, you can be pretty assured you're going to make a good decision. And I think we all as leaders have to think about decisions. Even if we make a quick decision, we still need to consider who's going to be impacted by it. And sometimes the decision gets made without really thinking who's going to be impacted by it. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it has to be. And we pick up the pieces later because it's urgent, it's emergency, we got to do it. On the other hand, the more we can involve people impacted, the more we're likely to make a better decision. Now, as a leader, we still have to make a tough decision because somebody's going to be impacted in a way that they don't like. And we got to make a decision that's best for the business. And sometimes it doesn't play out as best for people. You know, put your helmet on. That's one of the realities of leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and speaking, I want to talk a little bit more about binary thinking, you know, the idea that it's either one way or the other. Um, so we also talked a bit about, you know, different cultures and different people. How can you ensure that a number of perspectives and alternatives can be taken into account so it's not always, you know, either this or that? There's many different places in between. Well, I think it's part of the behavior of a leader mm -hmm. to invite diverse opinions and I, that plays out in multiple ways. Some leaders will, in different circumstances, appoint one member of the team to be the vocal critic mm -hmm. you know, or to be the court jester. Shoot holes in it. Guys, here's my idea. I think it's right for these reasons. Tear it apart. Mm -hmm. um, other times, it's, uh, as we said earlier, something that has to happen quick. And we know our team well enough 
to understand what the general perspectives are. Or maybe a decision has to be made tomorrow and I reach out to my three most closely trusted, the people that are most essential to my success, and I say, listen, here's the decision that needs to be made. Here's what I'm planning to do. Tell me what you think. So you have to be open to the feedback. Mm -hmm. But then at other times, you know, the boss, by virtue of being the boss, gets to make the decision. Right. And so we talk a fair amount about uh, the price of admission, particularly when we're doing strategic planning with a client. Mm -hmm. And in leadership coaching, we do that also. And that is that people on the team get to participate in making the decision. Not always, but hopefully more often than not. Part of the price of admission for being heard in the discussion about a decision is that once the decision's made, you live with it. Mm-hmm. And you don't just live with it, but you don't get to go out of the room and badmouth it. Mm-hmm. You don't get to go out and say, well, you know, it wasn't my decision. I would have done it this way. And these idiots made the wrong decision. Right. I think. You don't get to do that. So once a decision is made, you've got two choices. Either I'm all in or I'll have my resignation on your desk by the end of the day. That's a binary thing. Right. Yeah. But in general, binary decisions are lazy leadership, in my opinion. So we talked about binary thinking, confirmation bias, catastrophizing, and there's a number of other ones out there. You have these cognitive errors and cognitive biases that can really influence your behavior as a leader. How can you be proactive about these you know, cognitive errors and train yourself just to not make them or to make them less? A couple of things. One, um, really value your self-awareness and work hard to maintain a high level of self-awareness. And that requires us at times to set our ego aside Mm -hmm. and create a circumstance where within our team, people feel free to give us feedback, both positive and maybe, boss, yeah, I think you're heading the wrong way here. And if we create a circumstance where people don't feel comfortable speaking up Mm -hmm. when they should speak up, uh, it leads to... uh, having a bias create a bad decision. And I'm not saying that necessarily the feedback you get from the team is going to change the decision that you believe is the right thing to do, but ignore the feedback at your peril. Mm -hmm. And say that you are the person, you know, you're the subordinate or the team member, and you do have something that you really want to voice to your boss, but you're not sure that they're going to listen, or maybe there's just not typically a time where those, you know, open discussions do happen where you can discuss those kinds of things. What are some actions you can take, you know, as the person who's not the leader, but who's the team member to make sure that your voice gets heard? I would say respectful courage. It takes courage to speak up when you're the one with the diverse opinion. Mm -hmm. And it takes courage to speak up to a powerful boss. Mm -hmm. And it's not uncommon that the top dog is a pretty um, aggressive personality. It's not uncommon that the ego is pretty big. Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon that humility is not necessarily a strong characteristic. And then on the other hand, for some leaders, it is. So I think as a subordinate who feels the need to speak up and is uncomfortable speaking up, the one thing you have to understand is the dynamic of the person you're going to speak up to. Mm -hmm. So for example, if the boss is an engineer, chances are they're going to want a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. The boss is a salesperson, not an engineer. Maybe they're going to want the big picture. 
Uh, so know the personal style of the individual. If the if the boss is really focused on people and what's right for people, well, tweak your comments that way. So we use a variety of uh, what I'll call valid assessments, mm-hmm. which help people to gain a self-awareness about motivation styles, about personal strengths, overdone personal strengths, about communication styles, personality styles. And the more teams understand each other in those broader contexts, the more an individual can custom tailor their comments in a way that they will be heard by somebody else on the team that needs to hear them. I'll, I'll leave you with an example. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> this, this may be one of the worst decisions that was ever made in business. And I don't remember the person's name and they would, if uh, they knew people were still using it, they'd probably feel even worse than they do. <laughs> but it was the, um, I think it was the chairman of Decca Records. And he, he said, you know, we're not gonna sign the Beatles. People are tired of groups with guitars. <laughs> so that's like a career killing <laughs> bias. Yep, absolutely. Thanks again, Randy, for your thoughts today. And thanks to all of you out there listening to our show. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast, share it on social media, and tell your friends about it. If you're interested in bringing the professional outsider himself to your team and workplace, find out more at www.route2results.com. Thanks again for listening and keep an eye out for next week's episode.